closing all my noisier apps here. I just started recording. Shit. <laughs> and now we no longer need to come up with a cold open. <laughs> all right. Welcome to the State of Biden's Party Leadership One-Off Podcast Bonanza. Uh, I'm Julia Azari. This is uh, kind of a, a, a one-time podcast to talk about Biden's State of the Union and the recent changes to the Democratic Party's primary rules. Um, I am a blogger and political scientist, a professor at Marquette University, and I write about the presidency and political parties and political rhetoric. And hi, I am Seth Maskett. Um, I am a, a political scientist at the University of Denver. I'm also a director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. Um, I research uh, parties, party nominations, polarization, state legislatures, campaigns, and elections. Um, and I am also the author of a brand new Substack that is called Tusk. Um, it is basically devoted to covering the uh, Republican invisible primary for the presidential nomination between now and mid-2024. Um, so I hope to be posting there at least weekly until then. I'm working on a book that is related to the same topic about uh, how Republicans adapted to uh, elections in 2020 and 22 as they move into 2024. And Julia Zari also has a new uh, substack that she's going to talk about. Yeah, so I am uh, soft launching a Substack uh, right now. It's just my name, Julia Azari. I am writing occasionally about the American presidency and political parties and the intersection between the two. I'm basically planning to approach this soft launch like this uh, restaurant when I was in college that had 10% off for their opening for like two and a half years. Um, I'm not sure when I'll do a bigger launch. I'm also working on a book that is a bit of a deep dive into presidential history, and I'm not entirely sure when I will surface. Um, but I do want to, you know, keep a toe in the public-facing world, and so we decided to talk about a couple of really uh, kind of pressing topics among presidency and politics nerds. So I've dragged Seth into the presidency with me, and I, I want to start with Biden's State of the Union. So we are we are recording on Friday, February 10th. We, this means we've had a couple days to absorb Biden's Tuesday address. It means we've had a couple days to read all the other reactions and use those as a springboard to our own ideas. Um, so I'm excited to talk about how other people are wrong and I'm right. But first, um, I, I want to get started, Seth, since you're you know the party's person and you've uh, published a lot on polarization and ask you what, what was your reaction to the kind of uh, exchange with congressional Republicans during the State of the Union? I mean, that was definitely the part I enjoyed most, right? I mean, it was entertaining. And uh, the the State of the Union address, as you, you've written plenty about State of the Union addresses, but, uh, you know, the, the main thing of them is that it's it's kind of a dull format, right? It's not designed to be a particularly interesting or exciting speech. It's supposed to be a laundry list. And even really good orators, uh, you know, like Barack Obama, come away with a pretty dull speech for the most part. And this was legitimately interesting. This was uh, Biden making a claim about uh, Republicans saying that some of them uh, want to uh, cut Social Security, want to cut Medicare. The Republicans are getting very incensed that he suggested that and him saying, no, I've got receipts. Um, and then as they more they complained, he eventually just sort of said, uh, oh, fine, then we're all in agreement. Social Security and Medicare are safe, um, which was kind of a cool move. But also just like the interaction of it was amazing. And he actually really that was the liveliest part for Biden. So like he's, again, not a particularly interesting public speaker for the most part, uh, but really came to life with the back and forth. Um, and could read what they were saying and could interact with them on, on that level. So I think on one level, there was sort of the the symbolism where he wanted to show that he's an energetic person and can run for a second term as, as, as president at the age of 80 or 81. Um, but, you know, also it was, you know, kind of an interesting uh, interactive moment, almost like a prime minister question hour um, that we normally don't get in these sorts of speeches. And, I, you know, I was just thinking back to like, I guess it was 2009 when Joe Wilson interacted, uh, interrupted Barack Obama with the claim of you lie and like what a major scandal that was and how like he was sort of admonished publicly on the floor of the house for that. 
Um, and now this is just the state of things. There's a whole bunch of Joe Wilsons um, in in the House. And, you know, notably, a lot of those people, you, you did see Speaker McCarthy kind of trying to signal, hey, guys, shut up, you know, not like fully like slamming the gavel or anything, but just trying to trying to send a hint to them that it, this is not appropriate. But of course, the most of the people who were making noise were the people who didn't vote for him in the first place. Um, and so, you know, there weren't people who were very likely to, to follow party orders. So I don't know what this necessarily tells us about the, you know, the years to come. Um, you know, maybe this will degenerate, uh, but it was at least an interesting moment. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting moment. I mean, I think there's a couple sort of structural things going on here. Um, one is that the the address is designed as this sort of moment of interaction across the branches that was, you know, initially, like for a long time, really, like the meaningful split was between the branches and that there really was some daylight between the president and his party in Congress. And that's been less and less true. And it was really like those boundaries got erased a lot under Trump with congressional Republicans. And what we saw was sort of the, I guess, sort of the flip side of that, where now the, the important boundary is, is between parties. And it's not that interesting, like the interaction across the branches is not in a modern communication environment, especially and in an environment where we assume that the president is, um, is the leader of his party, is able to talk a lot to the American people and to Congress. It's just, it's not as exciting. Um, but that sort of live interaction between the parties was, I think, sort of replaced what it used to be, which was the live interaction between the branches. Um, that's maybe a point that only, only you know, serious history nerds um, can love. But I think the other piece of it was a spontaneity, which was sorely lacking in what I think of as sort of the golden age of television, which is also, as, as everyone knows, the golden age also coincides with the years when you were young. Um, so I think of that as, you know, like the Reagan and Clinton years or like the ultimate president is on TV being a talking head and it's not especially spontaneous or interactive. And the, the sort of substance corollary to that is that whatever they're saying has been, has been poured over by, by speechwriters and consultants. And this was like, okay, this is happening in reality and Joe Biden is reacting to it in real time. Um, and I've heard people say, well, maybe we could get that to be more part of the State of the Union address. And that would be, I mean, that would be a big departure, I guess, um, to have, to to build that in. And in some ways, I think the minute you build it in, right, the minute you, you change up the rules that everyone strategizes around the rules to try and make uh, the State of the Union to sort of, you know, script, script, natural seeming moments. Um, so I'm not totally sure that that is something we need to think about in the long term. Um, let's see. So we wanted to kind of talk about this in party terms. Well, can I ask you a question? Because yeah, um, you had written on uh, your Substack uh, earlier this week that... Um, you wrote this nice piece about State of the Union addresses, and particularly you addressed uh, the idea of sort of the, the party role in it, um, suggesting that in in a very polarized and ideological era like we have today, um, Biden isn't really going to tell people like what Democrats stand for. For the most part, people know that. But he can signal like what is a priority for him and what isn't. Maybe he can try and unify a party uh, on, a, on a stance where it's divided. I'm curious if you did we see examples of this during the speech? Does, was this consistent with your expectations? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've had a, a couple of questions from from journalists um, about this. I think especially about the fact that Biden has since gone on the road to talk about Social Security. Um, I think that's an issue where he can easily sort of say, all right, this this unifies Democrats and it divides Republicans and it pokes at the sort of gap between their stated ideology and the reality of the kind of political and policy environment, um, which is that you are not going to to alienate every older voter on the planet and and an important program um, and have that be like a political benefit. Um, the trickier part is the issues that divide the Democrats and unify the Republicans. And I would place police reform kind of broadly in that category. I know there are some differences in the in the Republican coalition, but it's much easier to unify people around general satisfaction with preserving the status quo than to unify people around an issue that your party kind of broadly and uncomfortably agrees is a problem and then have has drastic disagreement on the solution. 
And I was curious how Biden would deal with the police issue, given that last year he used this fund the police line that seemed pretty obviously alienating to a section of his own party. And then this year, it's so close to the murder of Tyree Nichols and Nichols family was in attendance. And so I was kind of like, what, how is Biden going to identify this? And it seemed like he did actually hit some lines that were, that offered some new ideas maybe about how to think about bringing those two together. Um, I also don't, so I, I thought it was a good speech in that regard, but I also don't want to be too, too sanguine about the prospects of that um, making a real difference. And I know that, I know we talked about this a little bit during the speech, but I was a little bit skeptical of the use of Nichols family in, in the politics of this, given the unlikelihood of seeing any legislation um, under the current conditions. And given that even if they do pass a strong version of a police reform bill, which Biden came out and echoed the 2020 Democratic Party platform about qualified immunity. It's one of the sticking points with Republicans. Even if that happens, it's not obvious that that's really going to get at the core issues or satisfy what the kind of central activists on the issue are are concerned about. It's not obvious that that's going to make things a lot different. And so that, I think, was was risky. It worked in the moment. Um, I'm a little skeptical moving forward. I also have been thinking a lot about a sort of populist direction. I think Democrats have really struggled with how to incorporate economic populism into their into their approach. And Biden really picked, I think, some some very uh, strategically chosen enemies. You know, junk fees, um, big big corporations, but in a fairly nameless way and kind of talked about the little guy without the other half of populism uh, identifying the the villain so i thought this was an interesting moment of party leadership but i have this more like kind of institutional question about party leadership that's been has been bugging me all week and i really want to ask you about it which is um about whether the state of the unions are sort of weirdly like parallel the platform writing process and like how much they reflect the president and the party or whoever's around the president at the time, the speechwriters um, having to incorporate the needs and interests of different groups. Like to me, somehow the, the two processes seem really similar. And I know you've been kind of looking at how these things uh, correlate. Yeah. Okay. This is good. I, but, you know, briefly, I just want to mention you, you talked about that economic populism question there. Um, Alexander Petri had a, tweet about this the night of the state of the union just mentioning that like that she generally finds the speech boring but she would listen to joe biden complain about hotel and airline fees like for a week like that was that was really good stuff um but yeah so the connection with platforms this is interesting um you and i of course had a paper that came out last year in the forum where we looked at a number of things uh basically about president modern presidents and their relationships to their political parties um, approaching this from a couple of different ways, like who backed them, who funded them when they were running for president and, um, and did some looks at their, at their rhetoric. One of the analyses we had in there was, and bear with me for a moment while I try and describe this, um, uh, basically looked at the similarities between State of the Union addresses and party platforms. And it used a, a, a calculation called the cosine similarity matrix. Basically, it's like similarity of text how much overlap in words these documents had. And it was, it's kind of interesting to see how the presidents differ on this front. And, you know, there's, there's a few differences, but usually there's obviously some similarity. And one of the things I was looking at just this week is how much um, a president's State of the Union addresses correspond with the platform of their party uh, the year they were nominated, uh, the year, you know, the year they first became president. And what you see is like for uh, for Clinton, for Bush, for Obama, for Trump, you see pretty similar numbers where I guess the numbers were like around 60 percent basically overlap uh, between their State of the Union addresses and, uh, and and their party platform the year they first got elected. And with Biden, there's a pretty significant drop there. It's down in like the 40 percent. Um, I'm still struggling with what exactly that means. I mean, it means his, you know, his speeches are less like his party platform, but what exactly does that mean? Does it mean he's less a creature of his party 
than these other presidents were. I don't think that's the case, but that certainly is, you know, that's one interpretation. Um, the other might mean that he, uh, you know, his approach to the, the Democratic uh, National Committee's platform was way different from other modern presidents. Um, and we know that like the, you know, the, in most years, the presidential nominee has a pretty heavy hand in influencing the party's platform, what the party stands for. My impression, and, you know, please correct me if you think this is wrong. My impression is that uh, Biden, when he got nominated, used the platform more to patch things up with the progressive wing in his party and allowed progressives to have a very heavy hand in writing it. And so as a result, it doesn't really sound that much like him, um, yeah. which is fine. And like, it's, you know, you can, you can use a platform for that, but I think it was somewhat a departure from other presidents. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, I, I think I interrupted you. I was, I, I, I wish, you know, I, I love to uh, argue on podcasts, but I just, I think what I have to say elaborates on this. And it, this is okay. sort of a hypothesis. I mean, I have sort of, sort of two competing hypotheses. And one is that Biden's speeches are somehow a product of uh, simply of kind of the speech writing process and that it's a fundamentally different process. And we probably, you know, won't necessarily know a lot about that until the administration is closer to over and people start writing tell-alls about the process. Um, or someone like me goes into the archives and we all know that presidential archives are a little bit iffy right now. Um, the So I think one, one hypothesis, the, the kind of competing hypothesis is that there's the Democratic Party coalition and there's the Biden coalition. And so it's, I think that the Democratic Party coalition is much like, as you were describing, this is much more progressive um, kind of coalition even than it was in 2016 or certainly in 2008 or 2004. And not maybe not just that it looks different, but that the progressive wing is much more powerful. Um and the Democratic Party platform looks different. And the Biden coalition, on the other hand, is unlike, I think, either of the two major parties, is a majority coalition. And it was a coalition that drew in the kind of Lincoln uh, Republicans, or um, now I'm forgetting, the Lincoln Project, right? Um, mm -hmm. A number of independents and disaffected Republicans and anti-Trump Republicans. And the State of the Union is a natural speech where you would see those kinds of tendencies come out. Um, it would be interesting to see if that's different from some of the other addresses that Biden has given. And he's not a hugely rhetorical president. He has given a couple democracy addresses um, or maybe look at some of the speeches he's giving, especially he was here in Wisconsin a couple days ago. He, he does like to talk to labor audiences, which would be an interesting um, kind of set of comparisons and see if does Biden talk differently when he's talking to the whole country versus some segment of um, what's probably likely to be a more partisan, um, a more partisan audience. Cause I thought I was really struck. I didn't do a formal analysis, but I was really struck by his 2022 address um, and how, how centrist it seemed. That's interesting. And also like you mentioned the, the democracy content of his speeches, which has been, I think pretty, pretty central to what he's wanted to focus on in the last couple of years but also is about concerns that largely came up after the 2020 election, right? He's largely responding to January 6th. So that wouldn't have shown up in the, um, in the platform so much, although there were some concerns about those things, but also, you know, I was thinking like in some ways it's, it's maybe about Biden personally in the sense that he really dominated the nomination cycle in 2020 due to, you know, due to a number of features. I mean, it, it didn't seem that way at the beginning, but by the time of the convention, um, he was the overwhelming, uh, overwhelming pick, and it wasn't nearly as divisive as, say, it was in 2016 or, say, it was among Republicans in 2016. I don't know that he necessarily needed to make a lot of concessions to the progressives, but I guess one of the concerns coming out of 2016 was that the party looked divided and they, they just didn't want, want to have that going forward. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, it seems like that was the real lesson. I mean, I've said this before, that Bar that Bernie Sanders was, is the greatest Democratic Party builder of all time um, <laughs> by sort of running this campaign that got a lot of people riled up against the party and against Clinton in 2016, that he's, um, you know, since then, the dominant response to having lost in 2016 is that Democrats are really big on shows of unity, even when it's, when it's clear that they don't agree on things. Um, but it's sort of reminiscent of like this 19th century form of unity, the like party regularity that's like, believe what you want, take, you know, take different issue stances. But when it comes down to key, you know, supporting the presidential nominee, um, 
comes down to sort of key priorities and key votes, um, you better be in line. That kind of reminds me of that. Um, Can I just mention one brief thing about this little <laughs> State of the Union analysis thing? Um, please tell us about the chart. Yes, when you, when you compare Biden's uh, State of the Union addresses with other Democratic uh, National Committee platforms. Uh, his speeches look more like the Democratic platform of around 2004. Like that's actually the highest correlation. I don't know if there's like huge statistically significant differences here. I'm not quite sure how to measure that. But in some ways, it's sort of consistent that he seems like somewhat of, a, of an earlier era president uh, than uh, or an earlier era Democratic nominee than he does uh, of, of the modern party, which I guess shouldn't surprise us terribly. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be interested to to break that down by um, platforms when the Democrats are the incumbent party versus when they're not. Um, mm-hmm. And I would think that that would be, um, that might be an important difference. But I think um, having sort of summed up that I think the State of the Union uh, was, it was very interesting how positive the media reaction seems to have been to Biden. And I think that when he, when he is able to draw contrast with Republicans, he looks better than when he's just kind of talking by himself. And it's, he looks even better when they do it for him. Um, so it's just really an advantageous moment but there's still, I think, all this other kind of undercurrent of stuff going on in the Democratic Party itself. And that kind of brings us to our second topic, which is the Democratic nomination calendar and the changes last week that are moving forward. I think not final, but moving forward in the Democratic primary calendar. And so I'm uh, I'm hoping I can call on you to explain what has happened, uh, first of all, with the Democratic Party <laughs> Okay, so let me see if I can sum up here what's going on. Um, no charts. So the the Democratic National Committee met last weekend, um, and they agreed to a pretty substantial change in their presidential nomination contest calendar, um, in which the from you know going forward the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary will no longer be the first contest. Now this has been the state of affairs for literally fifty years. Um, and they're saying it's, it's time for something new. What is instead likely to happen is that the South Carolina primary will be the first contest in the Democratic side. Uh, that will be in you know, February of 2024. Uh, then a week later, we'll have the Nevada and New Hampshire contest on the same day. And then uh, sometime after that will be primaries in Georgia and Michigan on the same day. And then the rest of the states will sort of sort themselves in um, along that. Now, this was uh, this all came about following a recommendation by the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee last fall that was specifically advocated for by President Biden. So, you know, this is the sitting president uh, uh, exerting a pretty heavy hand um, in this process and saying that he wanted to see this this change in the calendar. Now, there's obviously going to be some details involved in working this out going forward. New Hampshire, of course, has a state law saying that they're going to be first in the nation no matter what, which always struck me as fairly silly because any other state can pass the same law. Um, but ultimately, the DNC will pro- will negotiate something with them. They'll figure it out. Um, and uh, it's also probably not terribly relevant for 2024 because most likely Joe Biden is running for reelection and will not be really challenged within his party. But for 2028, this will be a very major shift. This will really change uh, where people campaign. This will change where the reporters go and live for a year. Um, you know, which states uh, voters get the most attention, you know, where the diners are and all those sorts of things. Um, so, OK, so that sort of, you know, sums up, I think, the major changes there. Is that helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, hopefully our listeners will find this very helpful. I certainly find this helpful. Um, the, the one, the one guiding principle when I was scripting this podcast was to make sure that you did the technical explanation. Um, but your reward for that, uh, is, is another question. This is academia, Ooh, pie eating contest. Where, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, where the, where the, the reward for the pie eating contest is more pie, right? That's the, what they say about academia. So, um, my question here is really about because you've been doing a lot of research on this and your last book was, you know, talking to democratic party activists, like in these three States. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what you've heard about their sort of sense of their influence in the process. I do want to preface this by saying that my main interaction with this has been reading 
uh, a book called Chasing Hillary, which is about following the career of Hillary Clinton by Amy Chozik. And it it spends like 20,000 years in Iowa and they go to every diner in Iowa like, you know, every day. And as someone who's from an adjacent state that's very similar to Iowa, except for the fact that it has a city that has people of color in it, is you know, it just made me really frustrated um, with with the role and the importance that like every single individual person in Iowa has relative to the other 328 million people in the country. Uh, yes, really good observations there. And um, so, I, you know, I should mention, yeah, you're right. I, I did spend a, a fair amount of time doing a number of visits to Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, talking with a lot of Democratic activists there between 2016 and 2020. And like, you know, I, I, I'd say pretty clearly of those four states, Iowa was my favorite to visit um, simply because they made it really easy to do research there. Like they've been doing this a long time. Uh, if you ask people, OK, who are the key tem- Democrats I need to talk to? People just know um, they have a lot of experience talking with reporters and other people who come through. And there's just sort of like a, a standard set of events that everyone knows. It's they it, it's a lot of fun. There's just a lot of very public events. Um, and, you know, they it's really treated as something that's like very key to being in Iowa. And so, I, you know, I, I sort of get the, you know, the, the, the aspects of the party that are treating this as kind of a significant loss. Um, but I've been talking with, I've just been following up with a few of those, uh, those Iowa folks over the last year just to get a sense of what they thought was going to happen. Um, and at least, a, you know, a number of them I spoke to seemed to think that something like this was inevitable, that they would, that they would probably lose their first in the nation status um, uh, due to what was basically the, you know, the Iowa Democratic Party screw up uh, on the caucus night, um, which was a combination of a number of failures, but mainly like the, the app that was designed to record all these different stages of uh, the caucus night voting broke down. Um, they had attempted to do something a lot more ambitious than previous caucuses and record all the different stages of voting. Um, and uh, basically we had, you know, there were just no results for like a week. Um, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg won there, but no one knew it for a week. Uh, and it was, it was pretty humiliating for the party. It was, it was pretty bad for, for Democrats nationwide. And, and so they, the folks I talked to seem to think, okay, there was, there was some punishment coming. They knew they screwed up. Um, they knew that there were substantial parts of the democratic party that have been itching to take down the Iowa caucuses for decades, uh, because it's so unrepresentative because it's so white and rural and looks nothing like uh, the rest of the democratic party. Um, and didn't, you know, sort of objected to the fact that Iowa had such an outside outsized voice and influence in this process. Um, and they, you know, and Iowans knew, okay, they had this screw up and they also really didn't have an ally in the white house. Joe Biden came in fourth there came in fifth in New Hampshire. He had no particular love for those those states in their contests. Plus, there's likely, as I mentioned, likely no Democratic contest in 2024. So there's no other major candidates to sort of champion it and say, I'll be in Iowa. Why not you? Um, so it's kind of a perfect storm for actually losing losing their status. And so, uh, you know, they... The Iowans I spoke to, you know, they were, they were saddened by it, but uh, seemed to think something like that was was pretty inevitable that was and for me this is almost sort of like a berlin wall going down moment like this is something i just you know i didn't expect to live to see this happen they just had you know iowa and new hampshire have just had such a a, a you know tight control of the party and, and this particular aspect of it and it's sort of striking that they fell um i'm kind of curious what you see as coming the some of the big takeaways from this yeah i have a bunch i will say one of my takeaways is that i listened to the new yorker political scene and uh, one of the journalists on that was like, I was born in the 90s, so it's just always kind of been this way. And so uh, that was some energy we probably didn't need here. But uh, <laughs> someone was born in a little bit of a different decade than that. Um, I have a couple of observations, although really my whole political memory also is of um, of Iowa and New Hampshire being these like, you know, religious ceremonies in the nomination process. Um, and I've always, so like, not to make this about me, but I've always basically lived in a late primary state. Um, so this might be some of my, my anger and frustration is like, people get very angry about being disenfranchised in the primaries. And I've always felt disenfranchised in the primaries. 
um, maybe with the exception of um, of 2008, which is really relevant to my larger comments, where in 2008, we were still in the era where the where front loading was really important and everybody was tripping all over themselves to go early because of this informal understanding that um, that going early meant that you would influence the rest of the process and that ultimately it sort of kicks off this more informal process where the candidates that do well in the early contests then gain this, you know, I don't want to use the moment, word momentum, but I'm, I'm going to... Um, gain endorsements, other people drop out. Um, and, you know, in 2008, that all got scrambled. And that was maybe the only time I felt like I cast a meaningful vote. Then um, I do have this sort of vivid memory of the 2004 primary, where it seemed to me at that point, like a pretty open contest. So George W. Bush the, was the incumbent for our listeners who were born in the 90s. Um, and, um, and there was kind of a, a bunch of people running for, uh, for, you know, the democratic nomination and then John Kerry won Iowa. And it seemed like that just, you know, that was like a snowball rolling down the hill. And I lived in Connecticut at the time. And like, we all know, no one gives a shit about Connecticut. It's, you know, it's very reliably blue it's not very big, but I was kind of like, doesn't anybody here get to vote in this primary? And the answer was no. Um, the answer was no. So, um, you know, that's the nice thing about living in Wisconsin is I can vote in, in either primary. It's, it's open. So as long as you only, t- you only vote in one per contest, but you can flip around, which is kind of fun. Um, but the thing that I really take away from this is the kind of relationship between the formal and informal process. And again, you know, I sort of grew up around this assumption that these early contests signal something important. And this, you know, many of our listeners probably know the story of this is what signals, you know, Jimmy Carter's viability as a candidate as he goes around in Iowa and meets people and is able to impress them. And like, I mean, can you think of a skill set less important? To being president than being able to be fun to have a piece of pie with this is worse than having a beer um but for the record i love pie and beer and i shouldn't be president um you should not be ranking pie and beer that, that way lies evil but okay go ahead okay don't don't oppress me i'm on a roll here don't tell me what foods i can and can't all right. rank all right um but Anyway, so but like I'm I'm serious about this point that like John Dickerson has written a bunch of stuff about how the the nomination process doesn't actually screen for skills that are important to being president. I think that's really clear here. Um, on the other hand, it, you know it does screen well, I think, for kind of broad based political viability, and that's not nothing. But what that then signals is like Iowa, and New Hampshire become stand-ins for the rest of the country, um, and then this informal process, like I said, kicks off where it's expected that people will drop out. It's expected that people will donate and endorse and rally around um, the presumptive nominees such that by the time you get to the convention, it's completely a foregone conclusion. And the formal allocation of delegates, the actual process by which nominations are decided was beside the point. In 2008, as I said, this gets totally scrambled. Front loading isn't a thing. Um, the or it isn't it doesn't turn out to be important and then in in 2016 it became this whole set of debates about um the role of super delegates the national party changed its formal rules um so i think that in that sense it may not matter very much in that sense it's not obvious to me that the early contests are as crucial as they once were and so that's i think a good thing in terms of parties functioning in a in a coherent and transparent way what i think is a bad thing is that we still have a lot of informal expectations about how the primary process works no one really expects it to be contested down to the wire uh no one really expects it to play out as the formal rules are written and now we don't really know what the what the informal rules are um so that i think is interesting the other part i thought was super interesting is it seems kind of like a flex on biden's part um it's very quiet president very much a creature of party not obama who was sort of his own media creation um you know biden is different but this to me felt like a real flex um 
on behalf of him, on behalf of the people who had supported him, um, on behalf of a sort of coalition between um, the African-American party leadership base, which I think is interesting in that, especially when you look at some of these older, more established figures um, within that faction of the party, they're not super liberal across the board. They look a lot more on policy, like the kind of white moderate faction that's still in the Republican, or excuse me, still in the Democratic Party that hasn't become Republican. Um, And opposed to this sort of like white progressive um, wing of the party that is is quite popular in Iowa and New Hampshire seems to do uh, pretty well in those states and for that matter here in Wisconsin. But like the other part of that is not, it's like there's factional politics, but it's also kind of like Biden being like, I am the president and head of the party and I will do what I want, which is really, I think, saying the quiet part of presidential party leadership out loud. Um, and I have been kind of thinking about that too. Yeah, just, I, that did strike me. And I'm actually, it, whereas I, I don't, this doesn't strike me as consistent with a lot of the, you know, the type of le- leadership we've seen from Biden. Um, you know, and I, and I don't have a great sense of how, what his relationship is like with the DNC, other than this very loud data point where he's really kind of telling you, telling them, uh, I'm really going to change the way this is done. Um, I, I think I pretty much agree with you. It's not clear to me that this will change the sort of candidates that Democrats nominate. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, we can remember just a few years ago, the Democrats nominated Joe Biden after Iowa, you know, he placed fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire. Like they tried to screen him out and it didn't go anywhere. Um, uh, and of course, the first black president got nominated uh, after doing well in Iowa, in this, you know, one of the whitest states. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's not clear that, you know, making South Carolina go first will, will substantially change who they nominate. On the other hand, and I haven't seen a ton of research on this. I think it's it changes the sort of issues that get discussed, right? Uh, there are, you know, we, we won't hear a lot of talk about ethanol going forward. I don't know what the ethanol equivalent is in South Carolina. We're going to um, find out. Yeah, we're going to find out and we're going to hear a lot about it. It's what, you know, people in diners are going to be talking about. And uh, it will change, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, something like half of Democratic voters in South Carolina are black. I mean, that will That will change the tenor of the conversation significantly. Um, and change who gets interviewed and who gets to speak at debates and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that should be interesting. And I, um, I do want to, I, I also agree with you. Like I grew up uh, in uh, always in late primary States as well. And so I'm very sympathetic uh, to your situation. Like I think the, the first election I could vote in uh, was, you know, the, the first primary I could vote in was about uh, whether to vote for Mike Dukakis, who basically everyone had already picked as the Democrats nominee or cast a protest vote for Jesse Jackson, because that'll teach Mike Dukakis something. Like, I don't, you know, it, it wasn't a very satisfying experience for anyone involved. Um, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. right. I mean, this is the thing with the primary system that pisses me off so much, is that it's it's premised on this very plebiscitary approach that the people should pick the nominees. But in practice, it's like a thousand people pick the nominees. Right. And so it would actually be more inclusive to have it be, just be, more hierarchical and representative, assuming that, you know, people from late primary states got a vote. I do, I do have um, at least one follow-up and I want to poke at something we disagree about because I'm bored, frankly, with this level (laughs) of agreement. This is creepy. Um, Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, This is, this is a group effort, but we, we have an ongoing and fundamental disagreement about Biden and the Democratic Party. So I, I think we should explore that for a second. But first, I want to ask you about the kind of partisan lean of the parties. One thing we haven't talked about is that Iowa has kind of taken a hard red turn. Um, and South Carolina, as you point out, is you know a ton of African-American Democrats, but not a competitive state um, at the national level. So... Um, that's uh, worth pointing out. I guess the DNC chair was the most recent Democrat to try to run for the Senate there, uh, Jamie Harrison. But, um, and he was like, yeah, seen as, huh? So I was just going to say, if we're talking about power plays, the fact that the DNC chair is from South Carolina, like that's, I don't know, it's an unusually brazen move, I would say. Yeah, the whole, um, it's similar to the yeah. Biden thing, right? It's a flex. Yeah, yeah. But like, what do you think the partisan lean aspect, does this matter at all? 
Um, you know, I mean, I'd seen that somewhat in the coverage, you know, that I can't remember where I saw this op-ed, but, you know, late last year, someone saying that, well, if the Democrats get rid of the Iowa caucuses, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll never be competitive in Iowa anymore. And like, they're not, they, they haven't been for years. Um, that wasn't about to change. And I, I am not under the impression that primary or caucus politics changes that all that much. However, I should mention, I was having a conversation with a colleague here at the University of Denver recently on this very topic. And this one who made the case that um, uh, she thought that Nevada only became competitive uh, as, as a state in general elections because its primary or caucus became uh, became an early contest. That is, Democrats suddenly had an incentive to organize there. Mm. And that brought a lot of organizers there. It brought, you know, got a lot of people registered to vote who might not have otherwise registered. Um, and that that probably made a difference in, you know, making the state competitive to actually with a slightly blue lean. And, you know, I, that's certainly plausible. Um, but, uh, you know, my impression is it it's, I don't think of it as that important about, uh, you know, whether Iowa's competitive or whether South Carolina is competitive in general elections. Um, I think in some ways it's important about, you know, who sort of the godfathers within the party are. Uh, Jim Clyburn is obviously, um, you know, in a moment of real dominance. Um, he is just sort of, you know, for years, just widely uh, respected and widely, you know, feared in, among Democratic circles in South Carolina. It's just like what, how he endorses is how the state is going to go. Um, and I'm, I didn't think that there's a Democratic equivalent in Iowa or New Hampshire right now. Um, someone with that kind of voice, that someone with that kind of influence. And that, you know, that I think is probably more of the story. Um, please disagree with me. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I disagree with you that there aren't, I don't know exactly how to quantify their influence, but there's a lot of Democrats right. in New Hampshire. Like, yes. what have, I think the kind of sleeper stories of the last X number of years has been lost in the the blue trending of Arizona and Georgia and places like that and the red trending of the Rust Belt. And, and Iowa, places like that, has been this sort of New Hampshire um, becoming a Boston suburb um, and becoming more reliably blue. And this sort of going into that category of competitive but reliably blue, not dissimilar from Colorado, right? Um, right. And I think that's, for the, the live free or die state, that's interesting. And it also does mean that there's there's quite a bit of a bench there. Um, so even if there's not a, an important Democrat there now, um, that could change pretty rapidly. I mean, I don't know any of the people in the state house off the top of my head, but but I know that there there are quite a few of them. I mean, the Shaheens come to mind as the you know the most important New Hampshire Democrats. Yeah. I know you've talked to them. Yeah, uh, Shaheen's definitely a big voice there, um, and you know their their voice is widely respected. Um, you know, at the same time, like. Uh, I don't think they necessarily have the same sort of control over, uh, you know, the Democrats in that state that, uh, you know, that Clyburn did in South Carolina. And I think part of that is probably the Bernie effect. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders just has a very big presence in New Hampshire by being from a neighboring state. Um, there's a much you know larger white progressive wing up there um, that, you know, even if, uh, the Shaheens and the Hassans and everyone else came out for Biden or some other sort of establishment candidate, they would have a hard time competing against that. Whereas I, I, I think, you know, Clyburn maybe has a bit more of a free reign in South Carolina. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that will certainly be interesting. I also think this is just, this maybe is a little in the weeds, but I think, I think people kind of expected Maggie Hassan to lose. And mm -hmm. so, and therefore she wasn't really being groomed as being this kind of leader, um, but she didn't lose. So maybe we'll see we'll see a shift as, you know, nearly all the Democrats in competitive states can make some claim to being the sort of pivotal Democrat. Um, okay. So I want to ask a, a sort of final question, bring us home and also tap into an area of our deep and fundamental disagreement. I remember <laughs> we were going to have a fight about the word, the book lucky um, about Biden's path to the nomination. Then we never got around to it. Well, I want to re re uh, bring up that reopen that wound now. Um, I want to ask if that, so you were really convinced of your incorrect opinion that Biden was the elite choice. I'm sorry. You're going to have to just have a poker face here. Um, I roast you. So 
you were really convinced that Biden was the the choice of um, elites and establishment and that thesis of lucky was wrong. Um, and I, I see Biden much more as sort of a creature of the primary electorate than a creature of the, the party elite. Um, my question is kind of like an expansion on this, though, which is how is your sense of Biden as a Democratic Party leader, Biden and his relationship with the party changed over the last couple of years? Has it changed? Hmm. Well, wait, I'm still I'm still dealing with the wound part of this. So I <laughs> uh, no, I still think I was right, surprisingly. Um, but um, and I, I, there's a there's an aspect of this. And this is I'm in the middle of teaching a class on political parties. So I, you know, I, 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 I give them the, the hardcore masket thing here. But like the idea here is that this is uh, that that Biden's nomination is a great example of what Chat Schneider wrote about in party government back in uh, 1942, that what parties do is less about persuasion and more about narrowing options. Mm. Um, and so what you saw in, in February of 2020 was, you know, you had a very divided and fairly still fairly large Democratic field of at least seven or eight candidates. Um, and a lot of the Democratic establishment freaking out that this is an environment in which, you know, you have the Bernie Sanders vote of about 20 to 30 percent and the rest of the party is so divided. This is an avenue. This is a path for Bernie to win and become the nominee. However serious a concern that, that actually was, the main approach there was to push other people out so that it would converge around Joe Biden. Um, so that the rest of the non-Bernie vote would, would converge around Biden, not because they love Biden, but because they had no place else to go. And I think it was a it was a really it was a great example of that. Um, and so I'll I'll stick to that um, in terms of where do I see Biden as a party leader? He's been, I, I think, a really interesting case. So I and I think we've disagreed on this before about um, I see I see Biden is probably more a creature of his party than almost any other modern president that is, um, you know, about, you know, Obama and others certainly pushed a pretty traditional party line, but um, Obama was most likely not the party favorite when he first ran uh, for president. Um, he was fairly new to politics still. He'd been a senator for less than two years. Um, and, uh, you know, he and he's and as, as we've written uh, together, you know, he was was very reluctant to the role of party leader and, you know, didn't really didn't really play ball with them all that much. Um, and Trump, well, you know, Trump is a whole other story there. Um, he was definitely not party, you know, party insider's choice and did champion a number of Republican priorities, but uh, in, a, in a strange way. I think we've had a number of, you know, governors who kind of did things their own way. Um, but, but Biden is like, he is a, you know, longstanding Democrat. He has been uh, you know, a Democrat, you know, I mean, he, you know, Democratic elected official since the early 70s. You know, he's, he's been doing this literally since longer the Iowa, the, the Iowa caucuses have been a thing. Um, so um, and he is like very much, you know, he's made a career out of being at the ideological center of his party, wherever that is um, for 50 years. And I think is, you know, very, uh, very, very much attuned to and part of the Democratic Party, which is, you know, in part why I was kind of surprised what a power play uh, he's, he's pulled with changing, um, changing its nomination system. But it also might be sort of a, you know, only Nixon could go to China kind of thing where, you know, no one else could have actually pulled this off. Uh, what, what's your take on this? So my take, which is also probably informed by I'm teaching this class called The President in History, which is focuses very heavily on the evolution of the President Party relationship. And, you know, I, I'm going to start with the Trump comparison, too, which is I fundamentally think that Biden and Trump got nominated in similar ways. And that's not to say that I don't believe there's a sort of procedural intervention that you describe. I think that happened. Um, I think that party leaders had reservations about each of them. Um, obviously more severe in the case of Trump. Um, but I think there were reservations about each of them. And then they were fundamentally the choices of the electorate and they were choices of the electorate in the context of a very crowded field. Um, I think you're right. Certainly what we saw in 2020 and like the last normal day of 2020 was super Tuesday in which 
uh, everybody dropped out and endorsed Biden. I think you're right that this was to, to head off Sanders. Um, but like a stronger and more functional party would have done that much earlier, I think. Um, or much later after more votes, right? They, they would have done one or the other. Um, but I think that what you actually see is that both Biden and Trump are creatures of partisanship who have learned to work party with the, with the skills and tools that they have and with the sort of structure of their respective parties. So, so Trump did this very effectively given his uh, limited political experience by working right-wing media, which is really, which is a really powerful tool in the Republican coalition. And we've seen the power of that in his influence over members of Congress. And we've also very much seen the limits of that with Biden. He both has, I think a, a wider range of sort of out of sight procedural tools because of the way the democratic party works, but also is just much, much more skilled in the role. Um, because of his many years in the Senate and also being vice president. Um, so I think that obviously this probably sounds insane because they're both creatures. They're, they're wildly different in their sort of history with their parties, but I think they're both creatures of partisanship. Biden owes his fortune, not to the traditional factional sort of things like, Oh, he's the, the person who's acceptable to all factions or he worked, you know, he worked the the party process in this brilliant way. It's like he had really high name recognition, and as your work has demonstrated, it um, he was the person people saw as as not having the flaws that sunk Hillary Clinton, and Democrats were really unhappy with Donald Trump, and that's the story of of Biden. Um, the difference is once in office, he had much more to kind of work with. And I think he's very good, as you would expect a long-term veteran of the Senate to be, very good at, at reading the room, very good at reading the legislative situation, very good at pinning his opponents into corners, very good at accommodating people in a way that doesn't compromise other people that he needs to work with. And that's sort of what we've seen in the legislative leadership. He's very good at knowing when to be quiet. Um, mm-hmm. And that, I think, is is what we've seen in terms of Biden's party leadership. So in that sense, also, I haven't, I haven't changed my view, but I've kind of expanded my view of, of what someone like Biden can do. But I also think to bring the president part in, that early on in the process, Democratic elite leaders had the same kinds of reservations about Biden that have been the kinds of things that have been a problem through his presidency. Um, I think relative to someone like Kamala Harris, they saw him as likely to to go off the cuff in awkward ways we all know he does that um he's not a compelling speaker i mean i think it's kind of astounding how how much like how successful he's been given that he hasn't been able to fulfill that kind of crucial aspect of a contemporary presidency um but we do see that as part of his presidency that he's not very popular he doesn't rally the the partisan base as president um particularly effectively he's got you know i feel like i'm constantly surrounded being in you know in and as we are more like left-leaning circles of academics and whoever like i don't ever hear anyone say anything nice about him um and <laughs> that's you know that he really seems like you know has a lot of skepticism among young people um which is a overwhelmingly democratic demographic it's all the things that i think party leaders thought would be wrong with Biden as president, which is not wrong with Biden as a person. It's not policy disagreements. Um, all of those have been true, but he's been kind of a master of, of the system. So that's my, that's my Biden Trump are actually analogous take. Um, I welcome your hatred like FDR, um, not just yours, but our, but our listeners. <laughs> I'm really struck how to, people well-educated who you know can you normally see things similarly and uh can can view the same data so differently um uh you know i'm really i was actually really struck by your claim that uh that biden and trump got nominated similarly i actually see those as like almost mirror opposites in the sense that um with trump you had essentially a passionate base leaning toward donald trump and party elites party leaders who were leaning toward Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, uh, someone else, almost anyone else. Um, 
And on the other side, you have on the Democratic side, you had a passionate base leaning toward Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren um, and party elites generally leaning toward Biden. And, you know, just in terms of the normal things by which we measure elite preferences in terms of their endorsements, in terms of donations by those who also donate to the Democratic Party, sort of party leaning money. Um, And on the Democratic side, the elites were successful. In, in getting the candidate that they want, and they really weren't uh, in the Republican contest in 2016, largely because they never agreed on anyone. Um, but I, I kind of see those as opposites, although I was, I was very interested by your take here. Um, I think we're yeah. more in agreement on... Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I think the, the elite question is an empirical one that that I should nail down better. But I think if you really look, if you dig into early 2019 Biden does not emerge as the obvious elite favorite. It's much more, it's it's a much clearer Harris story, um, and maybe even Warren. Um, but I think the other piece of the passionate fan base is just it's just straight up name recognition, and it's like Buttigieg and Warren had really passionate fan bases among the other people we know with PhDs, um, but I don't think that they had like it's i have seen this data right they didn't have great name recognition as of like december of 2019 um so i think like as many fancy theories as you and i and other people might have about parties a lot of nomination comes down to like oh have you been a famous celebrity for 40 fucking years then you know if you're donald trump great were you the person who got second place last time and you're bernie sanders and you're freakishly good at giving rallies okay are you the former vice president who had an onion meme great Right. Like you can slice up elites and factions and whatever. And like a lot of the people who pulled ahead just became um, were just people with high name recognition. Well, I mostly agree with that. But um, I mean, I think of like, again, the Iowa caucuses. Um, Pete Buttigieg won there by being really well organized. Um, by also doing a lot to just get his name out as, as well as he could. But you know, um, I you think being an effective public speaker and everything else, but was really not known a year before that contest. And, uh, you know, I was impressed, you know, sitting there observing present. one of the, one of the, he's not present, definitely, but like, but he had, there were more people there who were willing to uh, work really long hours for him than had PhDs in the state of Iowa. I'm confident of that. Um, so there was, there was something there, Well, it's not enough for the nomination. Um, and it was in some ways a similar path to what Howard Dean and, you know, you know, some others, uh, others have sought. Um, but I think one, uh, one area where I think we more agree is Biden's role, um, basically as president, as in some ways a legislative leader. Um, I thought you made a good point that he knows when to be quiet, take himself out of the equation, um, then I think, you know, very effective in advancing what he sees as a, as a gettable agenda. He's actually been, I, I found him very impressive in keeping his coalition together. It wasn't clear to me that was going to happen when he was getting the nomination, that it was a fairly fractious Democratic Party still. They came together for his nomination and for the election in 2020 because uh, they didn't want to look divided, but it wasn't clear that that was going to function well in, as a governing uh, organization. And it largely has. And while you don't hear a lot of people saying a lot of nice things about Biden, you also don't hear a ton of detractors. Like there haven't been a lot of major progressive dissenters who are, you know, at least among office holders. Um, There hasn't been, you know, the the sort of like, you know, public rump faction like, you know, Kevin McCarthy has had to deal with um, who's been working against uh, Biden. And even now, even now that, you know, they don't have a majority coalition and there's less of an incentive to stay together because they just can't get as much passed as they used to. You don't see AOC coming out and publicly bashing him. You don't see others coming out. You don't see Bernie Sanders uh, sniping at him from the sidelines. Um, Part of that is maybe they just don't want to be seen doing that. Uh, Part of that, you know, maybe just a party decision, but it also just might be Biden just might be a pretty good coalition manager. Um, You know, he's willing to give people what he can give and and still manage to, to keep this together. Um, so I think it's, it, it may at least come down somewhat to a personal style here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, he's a good new Stadion president. He's, you know, he's, he's reliable. He reliably sort of does what he, he can, as you said, give people what they, they can have. I think that's right. I think that the, the big open question that we don't really have a good answer to is how much of that is Biden and how much of that is other factors 
in the Democratic Party, including the legislative leadership, including the sort of hard lessons of 2016. Um, that I feel like we don't um, we don't really know. So we got a lot of open questions, a lot of material for um, maybe maybe future podcasts. No decisions have been made, not unlike um, the final Democratic primary calendar. So. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to work in a reference here to how I don't remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. But, um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, falling just, short. Just, just call me old. That's fine. I get it. But you know, uh, you should yeah, remember most, that. Come on. Yeah, most people my age do. I just don't. Like it just it just went over my head. Um, so that's where really were more you? A comment the moment, on me. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That's really more a comment on on my priorities as a nine year old. So I'm gonna reflect yeah. on that. Um, well, because a similar one from that era. Where were you the moment you found out Millie Vanilli were lip syncing? Like, do you remember that? Oh yeah, I do remember that. Um, okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, uh, so I'm the one I believe who has the recording button, uh, so <laughs> I can stop embarrassing myself at any time. Um, but I do, I do dramatically remember the the Millie Vanilli business. Um, so. Anyway, I'm a little worried if we keep talking about that, we're going to get sued. So, um, so someone I think would have to can, listen. Oh, okay, um, that's an excellent point. If we get sued, we'll know that someone listened. So, uh, we are gonna um, leave it there. I think with with Joe Biden and the state of the Democratic Party, perhaps we can uh, in the in the future address the Republican Party or some other um, exciting political topic. So this has been one-off podcasting bonanza with Julia Azari and Seth Maskett. We both have sub stacks. You should check them out. Thank you so much.